Hello, and welcome to Season 8 of the Second Chapter Podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy. This is our 76th episode, and I am so excited to be back with you. Just a reminder, I'm counting on you. The best way to get the word out about the podcast is word of mouth, so please tell a friend. They can search the second chapter wherever they listen to podcasts. Thanks for spreading the word. This week, I have not one, but two amazing guests, Babs and Laura Horton. When first woman and first playwright Plymouth Laureate Laura tweeted that her mom's first play was premiering on a Tuesday, with hers on less than a week later in the same theater, I knew I wanted to hear their stories. What I discovered was a creative powerhouse duo, both with big changes after 35. This is Babs and Laura Horton. Having my play on there and Laura was something very special for me. I feel quite emotional actually even just thinking about it because my education came because I stood on the shoulders of other people. I was the first generation of women to be able to go and stay on at school and go to university. And my mum and my nans, who were very clever, very creative women, never ever had that, that opportunity. Babs and Laura, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Very well. Thank very you. good. Thank you. Excellent. Well, I've only had one other episode out of 75 where I had two guests, and you are definitely my first mother and daughter guest. <laughs> so in all the other things you've done that have been pioneering, welcome to this pioneering episode of the second chapter. <laughs> thank you. So I feel like you both have had not only just interesting lives, but interesting changes in your lives. And a lot of times I get people on and I say, tell me about your childhood or tell me about how you came to be where you are. But as you are mother and daughter, I thought I would ask, I'll start with you, Babs. What was Laura like growing up? Laura always was a wonderful questioner as a child. She would ask you the most peculiar questions. And she would say things like, what if my brother rolled me in breadcrumbs and pushed me into the gutter so the birds would peck me to death? So I would very often stand back and go, oh, okay. <laughs> a little morbid, but whatever. And they, they were equally funny. So she was always a kind of wonderful questioner. And we both loved reading. I loved reading to her, but I used to sometimes when I was tired, try and miss out a few words. And she would pick me up every single time because she was word perfect. And so the cow that went over the mountain, which was our kind of nightly read, I'd try and miss a page out and she'd say, you've missed a page out, mum. So we always had great fun together through kind of books and talking. And I think we've both got kind of very quirky sense of humour. So we always laughed a lot from being tiny until now. We still do share an awful lot of laughter. I can honestly say I gave up working when the children were quite small, when most of my friends went back to work. And I had a whale of a time and we went off walking and we took boats across to Corsan because we lived by the sea and we threw sandwiches in a bag. And I think most of the time, we did, we had plenty of arguments as well, but we had a kind of rip-roaring time and did lots of different things. And we talked a lot and we made up stories together and we still do. I love rip-roar in time. Laura, would you agree with that assessment? <laughs> oh, definitely, yeah. I always remember, um, yeah, I did ask weird questions. I just genuinely wanted to make an answer to that. But I always remember my mum would make up characters when I was in the pram, and she had different accents for all of them, and I genuinely thought they were real. And we would walk to school, and we would make up stories about walk the journey there. So it, we always had, yeah, a really fantastical time, I'd say. Um, very open, very creative. 
it sounds like where we're going with all of this, we both being very creative storytellers, it makes sense that the kind of relationship you had when you were a child, Laura, being creative and funny and telling each other stories, which you're still doing for audiences today. (laughs) So Babs, I'll start with your story. I know you were a teacher and did a lot of writing, but actually didn't get to start writing an actual book, which you've now done many of, but didn't get to start doing that until the children were 10 and 13. Is that yeah, correct? that's about right. And by the time it was published, if I did my maths correctly, you were about 50. 49. 49. Pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't know which month. Darn it. <laughs> so one of the things I found really interesting was that the Royal Literary Fund has some tapes or some audio clips of you talking about different things. And one of the things you talked about was the writing and life balance. And I think something, if you don't mind, I would love to put that clip, a link to that clip in the show notes so our listeners can listen to it. But maybe you can talk a bit about how you went from being a teacher, maybe into your writing and finding that balance. But I was very, very lucky, really, because I was teaching in a school that was closing and the politics was awful. And the last things being thought about were the children, and I kind of had enough of it. And so I'd gone to an interview where they said, oh, don't worry, Mrs. Horton, we've got you a new job and everything will be fine. The school will close and we'll put you somewhere else to work. And I just said, oh, actually, don't worry about it. I, I, I don't want another job. I'm going to leave it where it is. And the guy was like, oh, no, you must carry on teaching and you must do this. And what else would you do? And I said, well, I think I'm going to go and write a novel. And I walked out of the room and said goodbye nicely and walked out. And I could feel my face going really red. And I thought, what on earth have you done? Why have you said that? <laughs> and then I said to my husband. Did you have any kind of preconceived notion that was going to happen? Or was it almost just? No, I was feeling quite angry inside about what was going on, about the children, really, the children I was teaching. And something just, I can be quite impetuous sometimes. And so I went home and said to my husband, I just tell them I don't want my job. And I'm going to write a novel. How embarrassing is that? <laughs> And he said, yeah, but you do want to write a novel. And so we agreed that I would just do any old job just to fund myself to write a bit more and have a bit more time to write. And I did that. And But it also led me into working for CAMS, which was working with children in adolescent mental health services, which I did for a long time and combined with my writing. And it was absolutely wonderful. So that day, just saying I'm going and I'm going to write novels was the best thing I ever did. It was terrifying, but the best thing. I was going to say, it sounds like something that in the long term was the right choice, but I can imagine that red face and just that oh. feeling of heart and it drop, either dropping out of your stomach or up in your throat, just going, what have I done? I know. I've done a few things like that in black. <laughs> I love that though. What, now that you've said that, I have to say, what's one of the other ones? Oh, no. <laughs> you told me nothing was off limits. Okay. Yeah, nothing, nothing major. I just think sometimes I'm quite lucky that I don't have a very bad temper. When I do go, I go up like a bottle of pop. And I think one of those was the days when deep down inside I was thinking, I just can't do this anymore. I can't take the politics anymore. But there's something that I want to do. And I just came out with it. And that was great. Painful, but I think great. As a sidebar, I really do love, speaking of the politics, your Twitter account is so worth a read. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) 
Because <laughs> you have always got something to say, often about politics, that I find very amusing. So that's a side note, but I do quite love it. Your first novel won the Pendleton May First Novel Award. So it was a while in coming, but once it was finished, I think it was well received, to put it lightly. Yeah, it won the Pendleton May and it was shortlisted for the Authors Club. So I had quite a lot of success early on, which was a bit of a shock because I went to Guildford for the for the prize giving and Mark Haddon was up for the same prize for the Curious Incident, the dog in the nighttime. So I just thought, oh, it's, he's obviously going to win it. And so I didn't write a speech or anything. And it was freezing cold night and I had to get back across London. I was just like, this is really nice. But as soon as it goes, I'm out of here and that. And then they said, and the winner is Babs Horton. And I just had to cobble together a speech. It was so embarrassing, but it it was a lovely evening. And writing definitely runs in the family because, uh, Laura, you are a writer as well. But tell me, because I know you have a background in PR. So how do the two work together? I always wrote when I was little and I used to make, I used to create performances. My mum bought me a plastic theatre when I was little and I used to make up up plays and charge everyone 50 pence a ticket and my mum's friends. And I was very strict. Oh, I love that you charged. I was about six. And, and then I'd cut on these performances with my brother, and he would always make fart noises, and then everyone would laugh. And then I would stop everyone and tell them all. It was a very serious endeavor. So that, <laughs> the interest in that was, was from a young age. And I knew I wanted to be a writer. So that came way before um, PR. I fell into PR, but I found it quite creative. And obviously, it's about finding, I think if you're a good PR, you're finding ways to tell stories from the person that you're working for to the media. So that sort of, that paid my bills, but I always knew that I wanted to write. It just came a bit later for me. I think various reasons, including confidence and money and all sorts of things. Really, And also not realizing what medium I wanted to write. And I think I thought I would follow in my mum's footsteps and be a novel writer. And that just didn't come very naturally to me. So it took me quite a while to, to figure out it was theatre that I wanted to write. And I know I was reading, you were saying it was a confidence thing as well. And I think so often, so many people I talk to for the podcast, it, and I don't know if it's us as women or how it works, but there, there seems to be this early thing sometimes where it's like, how do I find that niche? And it takes sometimes a little bit longer to get that kind of confidence yeah. up. Yeah, definitely. And also I think you come to it when you come to it, don't you? It's very easy to look at 21-year-olds <laughs> have won an Olivier Award and think, oh my goodness. But, you know, it just wasn't the right time for me, obviously, in my 20s and thir- early 30s. I feel fine about it. And it's interesting with the PR now because I kept them very separately for a long time. And actually, I remember being in a workshop with James Graham and someone had told me that I needed to keep I needed to keep them separate. And I remember him saying, oh, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And as soon as I started to think about my skills more holistically, that's when things started to go a lot better for me. And I started to run things alongside the plays I was doing. I don't think I will ever be able to write a play and just drop it. I think I will always be thinking about audiences. And so I always come up with, so alongside Breathless, I've done a podcast and I've come up with this this QR code idea that I've just got funding for from the space that I'm going to do in February. So it's, I don't think I'll ever just want to write. I think audience development will always be there for me. So it's been good to, to look at both of them together. It's funny because I was just listening to something with Emma Rice talking about she doesn't want to make boring theatre. Mm-hmm. And I think 
having an idea of what your audiences will find, what you want to write, but also thinking about audience development and that alongside it must be something that's helpful. Hopefully not hindering what you're writing, right. but you know, that you can do more than just say, here's a play. You can say, like you said, yeah. here's a play, here's a podcast, here are these different elements. Yeah. And also how to reach those people. Cause I think sometimes there's uh, people aren't aware how to reach, the, like, you know, for me with Breathless, I really wanted to reach the hoarding hoarding communities and people that associated with that and so I put a lot of work into finding different charities and different organizations that could help me and it was it just paid off so I think I, I don't know that always happens with theater I think with I noticed working with artists as a PR they'd often not thinking about the audiences which is interesting mm -hmm. I understand it but I, I think it's a shame when that doesn't happen so you mentioned hoarding and breathless is based on some of your own experiences with hoarding so what kind of led to you wanting to tell that story? Because I think that is a very, in some cases, some people would find that a very private or maybe slightly embarrassing or, yeah, how did you decide to tell that story? Well, originally I started writing a play about an older man who was a hoarder and then I decided to write my own play and I wrote this massive ensemble piece which won't get put on unless I'm very famous because there's a lot of characters in it. And it was very fantastical, so it was a bit removed from me. It was like this woman who turned into a clothes moth and all sorts of weird things happened. So it wasn't sort of my story. And then and then I, I, the Theatre of Plymouth had asked me to present three 20-minute plays or they'd asked me if I was interested in doing that. And I already had two and I had to write a third and it, felt, it made sense to, to write a monologue. So I had a couple of hours to write it. I remember the director that I worked with wanted it quite quickly. And so I just wrote this very honest a 20 minute monologue about this woman that was like based on my experience and it just went down very well and they, so from there I wrote like it's 70 minutes so it's not obviously there are elements of it that are fictional to make it more interesting but it is extremely personal but at this point I've written about hoarding quite a lot in a journalistic manner and I was also on the front page of a newspaper and they'd, they'd used the they'd used a picture from my Facebook with the title my life as a hoarder and I didn't know that was going to happen I was a national newspaper. So I already felt like oh. I'd spoken about it quite openly. So it didn't feel too exposing to do this. And you mentioned mystical was your first inclination. That sounds amazing, by the way, that Claire turning into a closed moth at a big ensemble cast. But I understand as a producer what you mean by needing to become very famous to get that put on. But Babs, you're writing a lot of your novels have been mysterious. Are they young uh, YA kind of? books or do you write them toward children or no for everyone I think probably my books are suitable for sort of 11 to 90 year old I always had this belief as a teacher that you had to keep your inner child you had to really work hard to keep your inner child going and I always thought if that disappears in me that's the day I'll give up teaching because the day you stop understanding young people or having empathy with them or understanding their fears is the day you need to to leave and yeah. I think 11 for me is, I tend to have stories that are around 11-year-olds normally, because I think in some ways that was probably the time that I was the most happiest and the most, no, not the most happiest. It was a kind of very interesting time to be a girl. I mean, I was a girl, you know, I was born in 1953, so girls had to be girls, boys had to be boys. And 11 for me was an age when I just used to, did exactly what I wanted in lots of ways. And I feel like a bit like that postmenopausal as well. It's a great freedom. It's horrible going through it at times, 
but it's a great freedom. And you almost come back to being an 11 year old again where you don't give a toss. Because I was like that at 11. And then you lose it and you have to be girlish and womanly and motherly and all the things that the kind of gender throws at you. And post-menopause, I really don't give a toss anymore. So it's a great, great kind of freedom. So I've always had this interest in the child and the inner child and preserving. Not so much the innocence, but the, can of call it your inbuilt shit detector, really. And you kind of go through life being comfortable with yourself and other people. I want my books to have a little bit of mystery in them as well. I love what you're saying too, because I do feel like there's this sort of connotation that as you get older, you get more conservative or you get more just, I don't want to use the word demure, but maybe that's the kind of thing I'm thinking about. (laughs) And I can say for most of the women I know, and especially for myself, I feel like more and more, I am more outspoken. I'm more angry about certain things. I'm, I definitely, to put it in your words, don't give a toss about a lot of things. I still have a ways to go, but it is really interesting. I think the m- more and more I'm hearing women say, postmenopausal especially, I just, I don't care. Like I'll say what I want or less conservative or becoming more outspoken um, is wonderful. I will never be demure. Uh, <laughs> and I hope I meet you on the kind of metaphorical barricade because the way things are going We all need to be out there, I think. I think you are absolutely right. I think, and again, I want to point people toward those audio clips because you talked about a couple of things with your childhood about that 11-year-old or perhaps a bit younger. Now I'm comparing you now to (laughs) this younger person that was just like, why are are they telling me to do this? And I think, again, people should definitely listen to those clips because I enjoyed them very much. Laura. I want to talk a little bit about your Plymouth Laureate yes. because that's a very cool thing. And I, uh, first of all, tell people what that means. Yeah, so a Laureate is someone who represents a city in a literary capacity, but there's never been a playwright Laureate before. They've always been poet Laureates. And so the Plymouth, Plymouth culture decided that they wanted to open it out and literature works who won the Laureateship. So they, they asked people to apply that weren't necessarily just poets. You could be like a short story writer or whatnot. And so I, I got this application in quite last minute. I don't know. I just, I wasn't sure whether I was going to stay in Plymouth at that point. So in the role, I, I run different workshops with primary school kids and adults and try and teach them about playwriting in relation to Plymouth. And I write a number of commissions every year through different businesses and different organizations in Plymouth. It's really great. It's an interesting role and it's been interesting to do as not as a poet because obviously it's a bit different <laughs> trying to produce plays because um, poets just read out their work. Yeah. When I was reading about it, I was like, you know, I, I'm kind of familiar with this concept of a poet laureate who goes and reads and shares and maybe workshops with other people. But then the idea that you're being commissioned to do these kind of rapid fire plays is very unique. <laughs> it sounds very challenging. Yeah, it is. It has been interesting and trying to find bits of funding because I don't feel comfortable asking people to perform for free. But there's some really good charitable organizations in Plymouth. So they've been really supportive. So at the moment, I've written this audio piece that we're going to record in the box, which is the museum in Plymouth. And so we're using five actors for that. So that's about the history of the stained glass window. So I've got a few months left in the role, but it's been really good for my confidence. And also it's just, it's been such a unique experience. And I think having to get up and speak in front of people is terrifying for me. So I've really enjoyed, no, maybe not enjoyed. (laughs) I think it's been a good experience for me to have to do that and to advocate for playwriting as well. 
And you've advocated for theater as well, because I'm going to completely forget the name of the company. Theater First, is that right? Theater Stories. Oh, Theater Stories. stories. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't have it written down, and I was like, this is not going to be the yeah, right but, name. Yeah. Theater Stories. Yeah. You're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I started Theatre Stories in 2020 as a response to the pandemic and Theatre Wall Plymouth coming forward and saying that they thought that they were going to have what well, they were going to have to make redundancies. And then people were really worried about the state of theatre. And we were only really hearing from people who were very high profile, like, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber. And, and that has its place. But I just thought actually we need to hear from community members and people that engage with theatre in a different way because it's not just about the shows. So I collect stories. I still do it. I collect stories from people about the importance of theatre and their relationship to theatre and share them. And I love that it's not the people that, you know, traditionally this highbrow theatre goer that you really are sharing theatre with everyone, that it can benefit everyone and that all the stories, I mean, for me, obviously, telling stories of women 35 plus is a huge drive, but, you know, that there are all of these marginalized communities or people that we all have a story to tell and that you're getting people to say why theater could be more important no matter who you are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's exactly that. So you've mentioned a couple of times Theater Royal Plymouth Mm -hmm. and it feels like an apt time to say that when I approached Laura, but both of you about coming on the podcast, it was because you had tweeted about your mom being... You, both of you being playwrights in the same theater at the same time, which Breathless was at Edinburgh Fringe. It won a Fringe First Award. So you've had a lot of success with Breathless, brought it back to Theater Plymouth. But at the same time, Babs, you had In the Lady Garden. Dude. I should also mention both sellout shows. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were. And it was very special, us being within those two weeks. I was in the lab and I was in the bigger theater in the drum. But I was immensely proud. It was great for us as a family as well. Like I came from a Welsh mining community, born in a council house and not very aspirational at times. And having my play on there and Laura was something very special for me. I kind of, I feel, I feel quite emotional actually even just thinking about it because my education came because I stood on the shoulders of other people. Lots of people who worked underground had really difficult lives. And I was the first generation of women to be able to go and stay on at school and go to university. And my mom and my nans, who were very clever, very creative women, never, ever had that, that opportunity. We were very lucky coming from the town where Iron Bevan was the MP as well. And it, yeah, I have a lump in my throat thinking about how we've worked really hard that enjoyed ourselves and for all the people who've given us a leg up, really. And how did you decide or what made you decide to write a play? I'd written a few over the years and they were, I hope nobody ever finds them because they were really awful. (laughs) And then Laura encouraged me to, I wrote a play called Wings about four young people in the psychiatric unit. And Laura said to me, mum put it in for the Bruntwood Prize, which I did and then forgot about. And then when we were in France on holiday, Laura said to me, Mum, I think your prize has been long-listed. Oh, had, okay. which was like very, you know, I was very impressed with that and very excited. And then in lockdown, I w- just wanted to write something for me that was funny. It was about older women and what their lives were like, women who'd been born in the 50s, and how they probably weren't that different in lots of ways to young girls today. And so I just had a really good time. And then again, thanks to Laura, she said to me, you need to get this play out there because she's great at 
publicity and I'm rubbish. I'm hopeless. And she said, go on Old Vic Connect and put this play out there and talk to people. And I was like, oh, God, I don't really want to do that. And I did it. And then a, a director came back to me. I called Deb Redgington, and it went from there, and we worked together to get it on into the lab in the Theatre Royal. We didn't any funding. Theatre Royal Plymouth were brilliant for us because we didn't have a bean. Nobody wanted to fund three women in their 60s to put on quite a rude, raucous play. <laughs> and our actor, Julia Faulkner, was in her 60s as well. So we were really, you know, I think like three old dears approaching the Theatre Royal, and the young guy who works there said, Jesus, this play is quite outrageous. <laughs> but it was great. And we put it on and we sold out. And we sold out in the first two weeks, I think. It was less and Then than they that. gave us another performance and we sold that. Yeah, we sold that out as well. And we had great feedback. And we had a really good laugh and a good time. And yeah, it's been really good fun. And we're hoping to take it on tour. I don't know how or where, but that will happen. I love it. I feel like I have insider information because when I was first texting with Laura about this, I was like, oh, great. It's such a cool story about you and your mom. And then I realized in the Lady Garden was the play (laughs) and that Deborah had come to me and said, oh, I saw Julia, who was one of your actors in one of the stories that I had put online. And she said, could you put me in touch with Julia? And then, yeah, Julia has since said to me what an amazing time she's had working on it because I'm in the same agency as she is. And she she definitely said, oh, I had to be quite rude because <laughs> naturally she is a bit posh. And she, yeah, she was like, there's, ne- there's so many rude words. <laughs> she did a really good, she did a wonderful job. And we had, when we went off to rehearse, we were rehearsing in Stonehouse in, in Plymouth and in a dance school run by three, four amazing young women down there. We just had such a fun time. I mean, I went in every single day. I did say to them, do you want the writer in as much as this? But it was just such a lovely experience. And to watch how actors are, how they use the stage and directors, it was just, for me, it was just absolutely brilliant. And it was three whole weeks, probably the first three whole weeks in my life that I've ever had to donate completely to your art. It Mm. was just wonderful. Yeah, it was great. And thank you, Laura, for making me do it, because I did resist. So, Laura, are you going to be PR to get in the Lady Garden, touring around the country and eventually the world? (laughs) I would happily PR. I'm not really doing PR at the moment, but I would 1 million percent do my mum's PR, obviously. Yes, please. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're too busy. I actually was reading, I liked how you were saying, too, that you tend to go up to Edinburgh to usually to promote other people. And this was the first year that you went up with your own work. Yeah. As somebody who's been as an actor and as a producer, how did you find it different to going up? Obviously, it was very different. But what were some of the things that made it more interesting for you? It was normally I take about 10 shows and it's so stressful. And it was a very different type of stress, I think, this time. Because I hired a PR. There was no way I was going to do my own PR in Edinburgh and I do think it's worth worth employing a decent PR if you can because it's so hard to like cut through as you know like it's tough right so I found that the hustle every day exhausting flyering I felt like I had to really put my back in (laughs) so I was like flyering every day and trying to meet people and inviting people 
and also doing my paid work alongside it. So yeah, it was, you know, it was an emotional place and a very, and a personal place. So I, I found that overwhelming. And I think it was much more giddy because it was my own work. I get invested in other people's work, obviously, but when it's your own play, it is different. And the theatre were co-producing it, but they were giving me the money to produce it. So I felt a lot of uh, I mean, they were very supportive, but I felt internal pressure to need to prove myself. So I was working like extremely hard. And I think when we won the Fringe first, that was so exciting. And the popcorn being a finalist for that. But I think also you can't maintain that, those levels of excitement. So I had some quite low points in Edinburgh that I don't think I've felt. I don't think I've been that low in Edinburgh before. Which, which which surprised me a little bit, but I guess it's not it's for a month at a festival. <laughs> There's no way you're going to come away unscathed. But it was a thing. When I've described it to people, it's always sort of like, it was the best of times. It was the yep. worst of times. <laughs> <laughs> because it's such a roller coaster, no matter how well your play does, no matter what, it just, I completely understand what you're saying. And just for listeners, because I've talked about the Fringe quite a bit, in fact, had quite a few women who had taken their stories up to the Fringe. But Fringe first, can you just say what that is so people know? Yeah, so it's an award that the Scotsman, awards that the Scotsman gives out every year. So you have to have them come to your show. And you know, you kind of, you know when you might be being considered for it because loads of people from the Scotsman will suddenly start booking in and you're like oh my goodness I really hope this is what it means but it's I think really it's the biggest award that is the award if you're taking a theatre piece up that's the award that you really want I think and we won it in the first week which was extremely helpful because you're competing against three and a half thousand shows so it's very difficult to cut through and find an audience and so something like that is just it, it just really helps you. It really helps you find an audience because there are a lot of people trying to find recommendations for what to do. So they will look to that to see. So I think we were one of six winners in the first week, but they award it every week. So it's an honour. It's actually I'm looking at it right now. It's on the. I kept it on the floor near my TV so, so that I can just remember that that I've won it because I think things like that are very easy to move past. There's so much rejection in theatre, and it's very hard to take time to reflect. I think. But I'm trying to keep it there. <laughs> can like maintain that when I'm feeling a bit low. Yeah, you definitely need reminders of this is why I'm not this is why I'm doing it, because obviously you're doing it for other reasons, but someone has validated what I feel is so important. Yeah. Definitely. So we know in the Lady Garden, we, we need to see that more. We need to see it around the country. And I know you're bringing Breathless to the Soho Theatre in London. Yeah. What else do you have planned? Oh, I can't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's more plans. there's more plans for breathless um so there's more tour dates and there's other things planned for breathless that are really exciting that i'm not allowed to talk about yet when you say you can't talk about it i won't say out loud what that makes me think but i know what it makes me think so <laughs> congratulations in my mind <laughs> thank you um but so i'm continuing to develop that and i want to also write that for tv or like to write a version of my story about hoarding for tv so i'm trying to work that up at the moment and figure out how you write all these different proposals in a different way. And then I've got five plays that I want to write. One is a commission. So I've got to get on with those really. And mum and I want to write something together as well. So we're trying to pitch for that. That was my next question. How do you have something in mind that works for both of you in your writing style? Yeah, so we actually did write something together yeah. this year. We wrote, sorry, we wrote a poem for the 40th anniversary of the Theatre Royal Plymouth. So they approached me and asked me to do it. And I asked if we could do it together. And so that was a lovely experience. 
But I've wanted to write a play about my nan and Anaya and Bevan for years and years. And it just, this feels like the right thing to do together. So I said to Mo, she knew that I wanted to write anyway. And I said, should we do this together? And she said, yeah. So <laughs> I say, I don't know what that's going to look like yet, but coming up with, with ideas at the moment. And Babs, do you think you'll have your signature 60-something woman with uh, all the hilarity and rude language that ensues? Hopefully. I think it, it could be a very important play to write the way we are in this country with health at the moment, and looking at inspirational politicians and looking at people's lives. Certainly the Welsh Valleys have seen so much change over the last 50 years, some of it for the better and a lot of it not. Um, so I, I do think it's something that with our two different age groups as well, Laura, I, I was living when Naira and Bevan was down there. Laura's lived on the stories of the area and as a child was always fascinated by Tredega and loved going back and and went to the university in Cardiff, didn't you? And uh, was planning on spending lots of time with my mum who sadly died before Laura got there. So we've got a very strong bond with the uh, Welsh Valleys, with mining with the working class. And I'm sure it would have lots of humour in it as well because you can't go to the Welsh Valleys without laughing. <laughs> Some of the humour is quite dark. But I think it would be a very interesting play to write. I think we'd have great fun together doing it. few arguments, but we'd have great fun. <laughs> it would be I was just picturing, it takes me just back to what we were talking about at the beginning, making the stories together and Babsy doing the accents of the different characters. And <laughs> I can imagine what an amazing time you're going to have. Yeah, it will be it will be it will be real fun. <laughs> definitely. So it sounds like you both have lots coming up. I want to go to you just said something about inspirational, which obviously makes me start thinking about my quotes, which is a thing I do on every episode, ask a quote that inspires. And Babs, I know you sent me yours. Do you have it that you can read it out for everyone? I do, I do. This is Gustav Flaubert from Madame Bovary, which I've never read. I kind of know vaguely what it's about, but it just the first time I ever read it, it just did something really powerful to me. And I don't completely understand the quote, but sometimes things are better like that when you just have the feeling rather than the complete understanding. Language is a cracked kettle on which we beat out tunes for bears to dance to, while all the time we long to move the stars to pity. I just love it. I'm so glad you don't mm. totally get it either because yeah. I love it and I don't get it, but it's such a good quote. <laughs> the sound of the words is so beautiful. Yeah. And I think I'll look at it in different times or listen to it in different times and have different ideas of what it really is about. But mm -hmm. such a beautiful quote. And Laura, did you bring one I for did. me? It's not as beautiful as that. It's, it's Maya Angelou and it's the quote, I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. That's always stuck with me, that one, I think, because it's very true. You couldn't be around people who were being nice to you, but you get a sense. You just feel like people, you can feel people's intentions and you remember how people make you feel about yourself or how you feel around them. And I just think it's a good thing to be aware of. I definitely love that quote as well. I would like to think that if one day people are looking back on my life, they're saying, she just made me happy or she made me laugh, made me feel loved, whatever that is. I agree. Laura, good luck with the next couple months finishing out your Plymouth Laureate. Good luck to both of you working together on this next upcoming play and all the tours and all the things that I know are going to happen with the two that have been out there. Is there anything else, anything else you'd like our listeners to know? 
Um, I'm running bad sex writing I workshops. See. Sorry. <laughs> Very different. <laughs> I'm going to it. <laughs> I'm coming. This sounds so good. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I said it way too enthusiastically, too. Oh, God. Oh, uh, I'm so glad that that timing was so bad because that was a highlight. Oh, Stabs, you talked about the, the walking out and having a red face. Now that's me. <laughs> Sex workshops. I'm coming. I think that's the right response. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so um, you send me a link so I can let people know about this. <laughs> That's so very mean to just innocently scream out something. So yes, um, so sex writing workshops, very good. <laughs> I'm not going to stop laughing about that for a while. So uh, I will make sure people know about that. And I think, you know, they will obviously hear my response. Oh, and perhaps what were you starting to say that you wanted people to know? And I'm just hoping that I survive the sex writing workshop tomorrow night. Oh, it's tomorrow night. <laughs> but but if I don't, what a way to go. <laughs> oh, so very true. <laughs> well, obviously, I, you know, was very excited about the whole thing. So... <laughs> Now, uh, we're just going to go on and on having lots of creative fun together, I'm sure, and having lots of belly laughs like we've just had. I think that's just the best way, the best thing about life in lots of ways is laughter. I, I really feel envious because as someone who I don't live in the same country as my mom, and when I hear you having these experiences together and both making these changes and experiencing new things in your life and getting to do them together, I'm really envious and it's really wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, Thank you. Thanks to both of you so much for sharing your stories with me and my listeners. And like I said, best of luck with everything that's coming up. And I can't wait to hear all of the details of the things that we're not allowed to talk about yet and hopefully tours and such. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for the Second Chapter newsletter. The Second Chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.